Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week's podcast is a pan-European smorgasbord of political points recorded at ECFR's annual staff retreat in beautiful Porto. I have an all-star cast, which is going to try and help me make sense of how European politics is going to emerge over the next year. We are looking forward to the European elections. There's always already feverish speculation about whether Ursula von der Leyen will stay on as president of the European Commission, whether there will be any Spitzenkandidaten for the different political parties. And there's also a lot of speculation about the dynamics between different countries. A lot of talk about the lethargy of the Franco-German motor, all sorts of discussions about power shifting to the north and the east of Europe, as well as debates about some of the big ticket issues like energy, climate change, immigration, which will seem to be likely candidates for political divisions uh, in the months ahead. So uh, sitting here with me in Porto, I have Arturo Varvelli, who's the head of ECFR's uh, office in Rome, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, who is the head of ECFR's office in Madrid, Piotr Buras, who is the head of ECFR's office in Warsaw, and Vesela Chernova, who's deputy director of ECFR and also head of our office in Sofia. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so why don't we sort of start with the moment that we're in and then sort of look forward to to where we're at at the moment. Um, It's been over a year since uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, It's been quite a high level of of support for Kiev amongst the European public, much more uh, solid than many people thought, but also a sense that power is shifting towards the, the, the north and the, um, and the east of Europe. Uh, maybe we should get, start with you, Nacho. How does, um, how does that feel from Madrid? Well, I mean, it's been quite, um, of course, an intense year uh, for everyone in Spain. I was, uh, uh, in a sense, quite surprised that despite Spain, of course, not having a, a large you know, historic relationship with Ukraine, and you would expect that the conflict would be a bit too far. But uh, Spanish society and Spanish politics reacted like very fast and very well. We all of a sudden discovered that there was a huge uh, Ukrainian diaspora which was able to report about the war in Spanish to Spanish public opinion, and that was very good because it felt very present. So there was a huge wave of solidarity in trying to help um, as I said, despite not being in a scenario uh, which was uh, kind of first priority. I think it reminded me of what happened in the Balkans War, which was also an, an, another area in which Spain had not traditionally been present. And, uh, you know, Spanish civil society, but also government and the army and everyone, you know, they mobilized to support that. And I think it was a test of, uh, you know, how much Europe, how much Europeanized, uh, you know, Spain had become 
in terms of its foreign policy, not just looking at its strict narrow interest in North Africa or even Latin America, but being able to think on, on an European way about the the issue and contributing to to its best, also to the um, um, to the support to support in Ukraine, even despite the fact that in the coalition government, which was uh, uh, reached in, in in record time of uh, 48 hours, there was not a specific chapter on foreign policy because the junior. Uh, partners of the government of Podemos of United Left, you know, were very reluctant, of course, to endorse the Atlantic and NATO and security policies of the kind of a, of the senior part in the Socialist Party. So, but despite of that, and despite the protestations of the junior partner, um, Spain, uh, you know, held um, you know together, and uh, and the government moved on to support um, Ukraine with the support of the majority of the, of parliament and public opinion. So Italy is another country that's obviously not in um, in Eastern Europe. The last time I looked, um, but also where public opinion's been much more sceptical about decoupling from Russia and about um, Western policy on the war. But you've also had kind of huge political changes in Italy, not least uh, partly inspired by by the war and the position that the Five Star Movement was was taking on it. Um, well, how do things look like from Rome? Oh, uh, hi, Mark. It's, it's, it's a little bit curious observing that that uh, Giorgia Meloni reassured uh, European community and and the Western community in general and and uh, uh, Americans in particular uh, about about the the Italian positioning in the Western in the Western sphere. But on the other side, we we can give a sort of uh, of uh, evaluation first evaluation of uh, health. European posture in relation with major partners, in particular it was uh, France and Germany, because I think that uh, that is true that the current government probably uh, is more nationalist than populist, uh, but it's also true that the, the relation with France and Germany have gone worse than we expected. In particular, I'm referring to the to the latest diplomatic uh, uh, incident with France for those who. Uh, haven't followed the, the story, uh, the French Minister of Interior openly accused the Italian government of not knowing how to manage migration. That is probably uh, true because it's a big, it's a big problem. But if this accusation uh, is, is, is true, uh, the direct and accusatory way achieved the result of unifying all the political forces again against France. In truth, for, for us as Italians, Nothing is better than a French accusation of not being able to do something to renew the national sentiment, to do uh, a nation building. And so I think that in the uh, Meloni mindset, now uh, uh, the, the, the government is trying to create a different idea of Europe, more centered on, on the capitals than the European institution. Uh, and in particular, try to create something different from the Paris-Berlin axis uh, and something different from the popular uh, uh, social democrat axis as political forces they, that are uh, governing Europe uh, till now. So, um, well, uh, what we're hearing from this is, is both... Um, uh, a sense that um, power is shifting away from France and Germany, but also that we could see new political alignments emerging. Um, 
Piotr and Vesla, you're both sitting, well, most of the time when you're not in beautiful Porto, <laughs> in the east of the continent. Um, can you talk about how, how it looks from your perspective? Piotr, why don't we start with Poland, because it's been so central to the European response to, to the war in Ukraine. You know, I think the war in Ukraine is, of course, um, something which has changed uh, a lot perceptions in in Poland and perceptions or self perception in, in in Poland in the political elite there is a rising self confidence there is also the the uh, perception or or awareness that uh, Poland's role is rising if, uh, because of of the fact that we are especially a, a very important security provider for for the whole Europe um, as a country supporting Ukraine in its fight against Russia and. And a country also investing a lot in in, uh, in security and defense uh, with the rising uh, military budget uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, so I think there is a there is a sense of uh, of being being empowered somehow by by this new geopolitical situation. But at the same time, I I have my doubts if if this theory of this notion of 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 the center of gravity of of Europe moving east is true. I, I think that what is what has, in fact, changed over the last year is that some issues or perspectives, topics, which are very important for for Central Eastern European countries or Baltic countries, like um, you know security against Russia, like energy security, um, things which which basically uh, have always been raised by these countries um, in the European debates now are in fact at the top on the top of the EU agenda and and this is this is an opportunity for these countries but is it by far not certain that um, the, the countries of the region will be able to take this opportunity and translate this this new situation in into uh, self-empowerment so with other words that that they will provide the solutions they are looking for um so i think this is a, in a way a mixed picture and the jury is still out how the how this war will that always makes for terrible podcasts the mixed picture and the jury still being out so Piotr is a bit sceptical about there being a kind of durable shift in the balance of power. One of the other reasons why people are sometimes sceptical is because there's a question about how united Eastern Europeans are. And like Sofia is obviously an Eastern European country, but the politics, as I discovered when I recently spent a few days in Sofia with you, Vesta, is quite different from Polish politics. Totally. Um, it's maybe uh, paradoxically closer to Italian politics uh, in terms of public opinion. Bulgarian public opinion is much more prone to kind of the, the I would say, the Russian talking points. Um, and the influence of those arguments, the arguments of, you know, peace at any cost, uh Brussels is uh, imposing this inflation on us and so on all of that uh is, is taking root uh, quite successfully um and maybe um the, this difference in the central and eastern european bloc has become very visible now throughout the war um on several accounts 
in the public opinion poll that we did recently, Mark, and which uh, you and Ivan Krastev wrote about, um, we found out that um, two of the countries, Poland and Romania, are actually quite different, both in terms of how they see Ukraine and Russia, uh, how they see the US, Poland being very anti-Russian and pro-American and Romania being much more, um, much less so, let's let's put it this way. Um, and I would say Bulgaria, although we didn't poll uh, in Bulgaria that this time, uh, is somewhere uh, probably where Romania is um, or even further. Um, why this is so? Uh, by the way, one thing on which they converge is their uh, attitude towards the EU. So both camps, let's say, within uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, believe that the EU is actually, has come out stronger um, uh, of this war. And I think this is very important and this is a, this is a chance. But uh, why there is this difference? I would say this is probably because of the success or lack thereof of the sovereignist agenda in our countries. And this is a peculiar effect of the transition that uh, in Poland, which in which transition, the transition was much more successful than in Bulgaria, this kind of sovereignist in a way, uh, uh, you know, if you, if in a way, isolationist even agenda, is 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 much stronger, and uh, and therefore this kind of also moral superiority can take root. Great. So I think we we've got a good sense of some of the different tendencies in Europe at the moment. In a second, I all of you to tell me how you think the European elections are going to go and what kind of new constellations of power we could see emerging. What it means for the European Commission. Um, get your crystal balls out. Uh, but before we go to the European elections, there are some national political situations as well. We don't have time to do them justice, these situations. But uh, I've just experienced some of your situation in Bulgaria. You had elections in April, but you still don't have a government yet. It'd be good to know what how that's going to play into this. It does look like the most likely government is one which is uh, an EPP-led government, uh, Gab, as a as a kind of coalition leader, but it'd be great to hear more about that. Poland, obviously, everyone's very curious about what's going to happen um, in the elections, um, uh, which are going to be taking place uh, later this year. And in Spain, it's also likely that there'll be elections in, in December. Uh, to what extent are foreign policy issues going to be part of the formation of governments or, or the elections uh, and Europe as well? Um, should we just have very quick answers to those three? Um, Vesla first. Well, uh, a Bulgarian government uh, has been proposed uh, just now. It can be, it can happen on a pro-European platform, but it will definitely cater to third uh, actors' interests. So the pro-European agenda may turn out just to be, you know, a must. Um, when you say third actors, you mean? I mean, Russian, Turkish and others. In Poland, foreign, not even European policy won't be a decisive factor in, the, in this election. It is very much um, for or against the PIS, the ruling party. And uh, I think the, the likely outcome of this election in October is that uh, we could end up with a minority government of, of the current ruling party, Law and Justice, Joseph Kaczynski, which would further 
we can actually Poland's position in, in Europe because we would uh, be so much self-centered and, and so much uh, preoccupied with uh, with our own political domestic weakness that uh, this Polish leadership in the EU to be even a more kind of a far-fetched uh, idea. And, you know, in, in Spain, it's going to be a very interesting situation because we have an EU presidency in the second semester of the year, which is a very important presidency for the EU. It's a golden presidency. It's the last full presidency before elections, which means there are a lot of dossiers on the table which you have to deal with. So it has a huge technical and, and political level in terms of, of getting all these things done. But this presidency is sandwiched between a general, between a municipal and regional election at the end of May and a general election in, in December. And this is a, these two elections are key to test to which extent the government of Pedro Sánchez will remain in power in 2024 in light of the election. So, And if you had to put your life savings on it? Where would you put it? Uh, my life savings, you know, under stress would be in this situation because the, the, the problem is not that Sanchez or Feijó would win, but whether they would get the support from both the far right and the far left to be in government. So Feijó is likely to win the, the election. the leader of the PP, another Fe, sorry, EPP. Another EPP. And uh, so he, he's likely to win, but he will need... Uh, in theory, far-right Vox party to sustain him in government, which will create another probably wave of polarization. It would create maybe noise um, uh, outside Spain because, because people would be saying, look, what's, what are these guys doing in government? You know, will, will it be something kind of um, discrediting Feijó or not? But the, the funny thing is that Spain is one of the countries which still holds an, a, 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 a big, you know, conservative party, EPP, and a big socialist party. There are many, there are no anymore, I think, countries in the EU which have the two kind of standard uh, right, uh, you know, centre-right and centre-left traditional parties. So the two-party system is holding at least in European terms and European references. So I don't think you're going to have another election in Italy soon. Um, so maybe, uh, Arturo, you can sort of start us um, thinking about what could happen after the European elections. But the last elections in 2019 were uh, not the sort of catastrophe for, for, for the mainstream European parties that people had feared at the beginning of the campaign in that there was a kind of majority for people who more or less supported the idea of European integration. But it was a catastrophe for the grand coalition between the EPP and the social, uh, the S&D group. And you saw how Macron took advantage of the breakdown of that thing to try and reshuffle the decks. A lot of people are speculating that Meloni could be the new king maker or that you could have a, a kind of Italian-inspired reshuffling of, 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 of European politics. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, uh, I think that Giorgio Meloni is hoping for, for a different European political scenario or landscape now, because Meloni is thinking of becoming a sort of reference for an alternative Europe, uh, uh, for a new right. And Meloni is betting on an European parliament with, with a centre-right formation uh, prevailing in the next in the next election. And uh, I think because Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy, and uh, and the Kaczynski uh, party share the same uh, parliamentary group, the European Conservative and Reformist Group, and Meloni is the president. So if 
from Poland, Italy, but also France and Germany and Spain emerge a center-right majority or not a left, a very clear majority. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Meloni believes she will be able to become the political center of gravity of the new of the new EU, and this is the, the, the ambition. No, is is not is not uh, 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 is not sure. But for this reason, I think that uh, is important for Meloni try to establish a good relation with other conservatives in Europe, but also with the Popular Party. And in particular, Meloni, Meloni's goal is to break the alliance between the European Popular Party and, and the center-left. And, and to, to do this, I think that uh, Meloni uh, have to have good relation with, with uh, uh, the Christian Democrats in Germany in particular. And uh, it's fundamental, this. And this is true that, for example, Manfred Weber, uh, the head of the of the uh, EPP intensified the relation with Meloni in recent months, uh, but he did this uh, uh, very discreetly. You no, know? um, EPP we know in, in the surveys are, are, is is losing consensus. So the idea for Meloni is to try to create or working for a new coalition based on the Italian model composed by, by Fratelli d'Italia, Frodo's of Italy, the ECR, uh, Lega, uh, League, the League, that is uh, uh, Identity and Democracy, so Le Pen in France, and Forza Italia, uh, EPP, the, the, the Popular Party. So it'd be great, Piotr, first of all, to hear from you about how this is seen in, in Poland. Um, and Obviously, one of the other big parties will be um, will be the PP in Spain, um, which are likely to do quite well, having done catastrophically badly um, uh, in the last European elections. Um, but uh, you know, there are obviously going to be uh, some quite big battles within the CDU because they're going to be kind of critical. And von der Leyen, as a CDU member, complicates the story because how do you get this big re? creation of, of European forces if you get a status quo um, candidate for, for, the, for the biggest party in the EPP group. And anyway, should we start with Poland? And then it'd be great to hear from, from uh, Nacho and, and Wessler, but Wessler and, and New Piotr obviously are very close followers of the German political situation as well. So you might want to comment on that as well as your own countries. Yeah, I think, you know, th there are many more question marks, actually, because uh, uh, the CDU uh, is, of course, split um, on, on the issue uh, how to go about Meloni and, and a potential coalition with the um, with her party. But at the same time, I think the, the main stumbling block for this uh, coalition could be the Polish party, the civic platform, which is the party, the, the, the largest opposition party, party uh, led by Donald Tusk, uh, they can even win the election or at least be the, the Tusk may become prime minister after the, 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 the Polish election in October. And although the, the outcome is fairly open at the moment, so it's very difficult to predict, but, but it is, we shouldn't exclude that. But even if the civic platform ends up in the opposition after the Polish national election, it will still remain a, a, a big part of the um, uh, of the EPP, um, one of the of the key 
parties in, in this grouping. And for Tusk to be in a coalition, in a parliamentary coalition in the European Parliament with the PIS, with Kaczynski, is an absolute no-go. So I, 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 I couldn't imagine that. And this is also for also for 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 parts of of, of the CDU and and some other parties in the in Europe members of the EPP it is it, it is very very difficult to imagine so so i think this is this is a one in, in interesting point and i think it, it, the the question is because we we talked about meloni as the kingmaker and i think this is this is right i, I think she will be the uh, she will play an extremely important role but but i i think there is a uh, I could imagine a compromise, which is basically perhaps it it, it seems to be uh, quite uh, at the moment quite surrealistic to to think about it, but that uh, that Meloni will join uh, the EPP, uh, and there are even some rumors that that, that could be a um, Manfred Weber's um, uh, strategy to basically draw Meloni to. Uh, to the European People's Party, and because that could, uh, and that would interestingly break this alliance between Meloni and ECR, and, and especially Meloni and, and the PIS. So the PIS think, even would Forza Italia be able to block that? Would they want to? It's difficult to say because Forza Italia is is in a very weak position because the leader Silvio Berlusconi is elderly and ill, and there is a, a Benvegonian effect that uh, that is in favor of Giorgia Meloni in Italy. So uh, um, it's a matter of survival about BP in Italy, and that okay. would uh, that would open the way for uh, open the door for for Meloni to play an important role in the in the mainstream of the, of the European politics. That would of course change the mainstream of of. of of the Republic significantly, I think, uh, but that would uh, also uh, weaken the the far right. I mean, the the the, the ECR bloc, which without Fratelli d'Italia wouldn't be any any major player. But you see, this conversation is about the Christian Democrats, yes. uh, about EPP. So the Spitzenkandidaten debate became an EPP debate. Nobody else really wants to talk about it. The other political families don't. The European governments do not want to hear about it at all, even. Um, and they actually try to actively to water it down. And I think at the end, the question will be, uh, what will, again, sorry to say that, France and Germany do? Because uh, for Germany, um, it is not easy to see that the opposition, their main opposition, is driving this process, so they will probably not see it very favorably. Uh, despite of the lip service of the chancellor, uh, who says that the German candidate is first and foremost a German. And then the other op big opposition to that will be France, because for Macron, uh, the European Parliament elections will be in a way a very, very difficult elections. And having to, you know, having to deal with with the Christian Democrats who are trying to call the shots and to basically fix the agenda for the EU for the next years is not going to be anything that he would wa want to see. And so, bottom line is, we may not have a Spitzenkandidat in process at all if uh, the Christian Democrats do not create some sort of a coalition and make this process kind of winning for other parties as well. And how do you think it's going to be seen by Fejo 
Well, it's a it's a it's a complicated moment because you know if uh, Pedro Sanchez stays in in power, there are not enough progressive governments around to be influential. So he would have to support um, you know a, a good candidate who can work then later with Spain if it's Ursula von der Leyen. No? So so he would have to to vote for a conservative and and for that explicit candidate and. Uh, doesn't work, of course. If it's Feijó, the problem is that um, there are not many anymore pro-European, <laughs> centre-right and conservative governments. So um, how to position itself? Of course, I mean, the, the, he would he would go Just for Ursula. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. See what happens in their elections. So, um, <laughs> but the, I guess they would, uh, you know, I think Feijó would be in a big position because probably Spain would be the largest um, conservative group um, depending on how the Germans do. So that means that, you know, if you don't get the presidency of the commission, but and not having or being the largest group in parliament, at least you could get a very top level commissioner, which this time is, just, of course, not going to be the HRVP, uh, you know, foreign policy, Joseph Borrell post, but it could be a, a key vice presidency and so on. So I think for Fejo is going to play uh, pretty well um, if the results of the um, European elections leave him as the leader of the largest uh, EPP group in the in the parliament. Okay, well, we've gone quite long. It's been a very interesting but slightly polyphonic um, uh, discussion by design because European politics is getting uh, more and more complicated. We haven't talked so much about the big issues which uh, may or may not be on the ballot, whether it's refugees, energy policy, enlargement of the EU. But I think we'll have even more discussions of these things in that we've got a year to, to cover um, this important policy agenda. But there is one thing left to do on this on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to go first? I think I have the best uh, choice uh to offer, and I did not uh, choose the book because of this conversation, but I have actually Catherine Ashton's book with me. Ah. And it's called And Now What? Great. Perfect. Isn't it? And Then What? And Then What? <laughs> she appeared on the podcast, so people are very interested in, in uh, Kathy Ashton's book. You should listen to the, the podcast with Kathy. Piotr, what's on your bookshelf? I, I'm reading a... a, a... A book by a Turkish author Emre Temel Kuran uh, on um, on Turkey, on Turkish history, politics, uh, traditions, and about the craziness of, uh, as the author calls it, uh, the political culture of the of, of the country. It's, it's a fascinating book. Great, thank you. What about you, Nacho? I'm reading one book which is kind of seven in one, which is Catherine Belton's uh, Putin's Men. Um, and uh, it's amazing, you know, how how well uh, researched it is. And um, and I think one of the most fascinating bits is the origins of Trump's relationship uh, with Russia at the time he was running the casinos in Atlantic City, you know, which is part of the story that was probably less least known, but is very, very revealing of how, of what was the magic that Russia was doing in Atlantic City, <laughs> investing in Trump at a very early stage. All right, what about you, Arturo? Uh, the book is uh, the autobiography of George Amherst. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny, but there are some uh, important elements to understand the, the background of George Meloni. And the, 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 the title is, I'm George Meloni, My Roots, My Ideas. And so I think it's important to understand the, the Giorgia Meloni mindset. 
fantastic. It's good to see that your patriotic drive is leading you to read the, the authorised biography of, uh, of your head of government. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, um, please do head to whatever platform you use to download it from and subscribe to future issues. And when you're there, it'd be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help drive interest to uh, the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, uh, ecfr.eu. But for now, from Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, Arturo Varvelli, Vesla Chanova, Piotr Barras, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is, is Mireya Faro-Sarabs. <laughs>